Hi, everybody. This is uh, Silvio Canto in Dallas, uh, Texas, on Friday, December the 29th. This is our last Friday of 2023. And I wanted to touch base with a, today with an old friend, uh, my fellow contributor to Babalu blog, uh, Professor Carlos Eide. Happy New Year, Carlos. Welcome. Happy New Year, Silvio. Happy Feliz Año Nuevo, as they used to say uh, when we were younger. <laughs> yes. yes. Feliz Navidad, Feliz Prospero. No, Feliz Navidad, Prospero Año Nuevo. That's what I oh, Prospero Año Nuevo. Yes. Yeah. Prospero That's Año how, Nuevo. Right. And, uh, Yes, the Año Nuevos, they just keep coming, coming. Mom, well, that's that's one of the things I wanted to chat with you about today because this is going to mark, uh, in a couple of days, it will mark a an amazing anniversary, 65 mm -hmm. years uh, of the Castro uh, dictatorship. I, I cannot call this guy a president of Cuba. I'm sorry, people do. I still have to call him a dictator. I, I just think that's what he is. But anyway. Well, yeah, they're, they're all dictators and even fake dictators, too. Uh, yes. is a stand-in for the Castro right. dynasty. That's correct. That's correct. But it was 65 years ago, and I always remember that part of your book uh, where you you are a young, a young boy in Cuba, just like I was at the time, and you're driving home from a wedding on December 31st. Yes. And then, uh, of course, a few days later, as you relate in your book, you're out there with your mother watching Fidel Castro come into Havana. Now, I don't remember that. I don't remember. I remember the incident, but I don't remember being out in the streets oh. like you were. So you, you were there to see it. Yeah. And I think of that, Carlos, and I think of that moment that I asked myself, How could this be 65 years ago, Carlos? It's, how did this regime survive 65 years, Carlos? Oh, well, you know, um, that's a $64 trillion question because um, but it, by all indices, you know, of, of uh, what, what makes a failed state, right? Cuba ranks very high on just about every point politically, economically, socially, culturally, uh, but, you know, especially um, it, it escapes the, the list of a failed state on one point alone, longevity, <laughs> which has always been a, a great puzzle to me. Repression has a lot to do with it. I mean, let's, let's talk about two different Uh, from two different perspectives, why why is it still in place 65 years, one internal and one external, right? Internally, there's no denying the fact that it has, from day one, been a, a very repressive state. And the, the men in charge, and they were all men, and, and in a country that had a substantial black population, They were all white men. They seized power and seized control of everything very, very quickly and very efficiently and very brutally, right? So from day one, it's been that this way. And uh, we saw something very, very rare happen in the summer of 2021. Or was it 2022? Well, 20, I think it was 21, yeah. 
Yeah. The marches, you mean, yeah. Yeah, July 11th. Thousands of Cubans uh, flood the streets to just say, we've had enough. And what happens? They crack down on the protesters. They um, arrest thousands, but then they only process about 1,000 or so uh, through their court system and impose very long, very heavy sentences on them for simply being out on the street and protesting. So uh, people now are afraid, more afraid than they had been before, because they thought, well, maybe, maybe things now have reached a critical point where we can actually go out on the street and complain, right? Um, <clears throat> so repression has everything to do with it internally. Externally, this is the big mystery for me. I mean, the repression is no mystery. That's the way that, you know, the Third Reich stayed in power for as long as it did. That's the way the Roman Empire stayed in power for as long as it did. Uh, through, you know, sheer brute force and repression. Uh, the mystery is why other countries on Earth have uh, come to the aid of Cuba so consistently and, and so generously because it's a well-known fact. And anyone who doubts it just needs to do a little Google search, you know, Cuba's debt. <laughs> they never, ever pay what they borrow. It's an amazing thing. I, 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 I'm sorry to interrupt you, but it is a completely amazing thing how this government borrows money and then reschedules. Right. That's all they do. And they and, put pennies, pennies on the dollar, pennies right. on the euro. And, you know, my father was a banker, and this is one of the things that he always brought up, you know, what you're talking about right now, is this government, I mean, they, somebody lends them money, and then they're willing to reschedule it, as you say, at pennies on the dollar. Mexico recently wrote off millions of dollars, just wrote it off and said, okay, here, forget about it. So why that is, I, can I suggest that maybe it's because Cuba is an enemy of the United States and some of these countries see Cuba uh, as a way of sort of sticking a finger in the United States eye? Could that be the reason? I, I feel... You know, that that is, I once told a a professor at, at a university in Mexico, we were talking about this, and I said, your problem is that you hate the United States more than you love the Cuban people. <laughs> okay? And that yeah. is why, you know, you continue to support a regime. You certainly wouldn't support them if they were a right-wing government. You wouldn't support them. You would be You would be startled at their political prisons or their repression. Yeah, but yet they tolerated Carlos. They do, and that's that's. I think you're right. It, it's not the only reason, but it's it's a very uh, large contributor to to this phenomenon. Is the political mystique, right, of the so-called Cuban Revolution? I um, also think that there's another economic factor, and I was just thinking about this: that the fact is that Cuba is so small that the loans that they borrow are relatively small for the countries that lend them the money, if you understand what I mean. 
Yes. So it's yeah. So it's not like you know France or England or whoever is lending them the money is taking a big hit here. I mean, the the reality is that it's it's actually very small. It's a very small burden for them. Yeah. Uh, so is, I think that has something to do with it. Yeah. I think you're right, and this is an area where I don't have much expertise at all because I've I've never studied economics. But you know, I I think of a country. Uh, let's think of a large Latin American country, either Argentina or Brazil, and the amount of debt that they have also uh, left unpaid. And what happened? You know, Argentina now something like what, what? What's the latest figure? Like forty percent of the population is under the poverty line. Right, right. And that I, has a lot to do with their unpaid debt. Sure. Right. But Castro has always had Cuba has always had this lucky streak yeah. of being able to, as like you say, borrow money, not have to pay it back. And I think that is a small part of that external factor. Uh, that you were talking about, but let me bring up something. I, my, both of my parents have passed away, so I, when these anniversaries come up, I, I miss the fact that they're not around because I used to talk to them a lot about these early days of 1959. And one thing my mother would always say is she couldn't believe that we let this happen. She said, "How how did we allow this to happen? How did we?" you know, the people of Cuba allow this to happen. And and what she means is that somehow the Cubans put down their guard and they didn't realize that they were dealing with a communist regime who had no intentions of fulfilling any of their promises, Carlos. Yeah, well, uh, again, you know, back to the... I'm going to uh, put up my volume a little bit, so that's why I'm looking away from the screen. I think that'll be better. My neighbor's dogs are always barking. <laughs> That's okay. I I thought they were showing their support for our uh, for our conversation. We always love, you know, we always like to get support wherever it comes from. Yes. So tell your neighbor that uh, his dogs will be heard over at Babalu tonight. Yes. Um, so um, yeah, I I and now they also uh, got a, some kind of um, dirt bike for Christmas. So. We might be hearing that too. My well, window's okay. closed, but if, you know, Carlos. Let me put it this way: If they're your neighbors, I like them. Okay. okay. <laughs> so, I like, so we'll put it that way. Your okay. friend is my friend. Good. Well, yeah. My my, you know, my dad from day one said, uh, "This guy's no good. This is terrible." But this leads me to my my own thinking on it as a historian. Of uh, why Cubans, quote, unquote, let it happen, right? Okay, item number one. Cuba had a very large middle class, and it had a booming economy. And uh, yes, there was poverty. There's no country on earth that doesn't have poverty. And there were endemic problems uh, of all sorts. But Cuba was a very politically immature country, very young. I was born in 1950, right? So Cuba became independent in 1902. On my father's side, 
my grandparents had both been born not only under Spanish rule, but when there were still slaves in Cuba. Because Cuba had slavery till the 1880s, right? And I remember my grandparents talking, my, gra my, my, grandfather, my father's father passed away before I was born, but I remember my grandmother who lived with us always telling us about what esclavos, the slaves, and the slaves had to do this, and the slaves had to do that, and everybody was a slave around us. And this, this country also received over a million immigrants between 1900 mm -hmm. and 1950, mostly Spanish, from all different parts of Spain. So it was politically very immature because the Spanish themselves have never had a, a good political history until uh, fairly recently. It's, it's been a very uh, unstable nation politically uh, until the 20th century, until the second half of the 20th century. So that was part of it. And then another issue within that history of Cuba itself was I, I had grandparents, and I'm sure you did too, who remembered the struggle for freedom from Spain. And what was happening in the 19th century? Cubans would come to the U.S. escaping political persecution. And there were communities here, especially in Tampa and, and New York City, with a substantial number of Cubans, enough Cubans for these uh, refugees to collect money and to get enough money together to fund the independence movement back on the island. This is in our political memory as Cubans. Yes. That's what Cubans did in 1959, 1960. And, and, and this was one reason that people let their guard down was not just the political immaturity of Cuba, but the fact that this had always worked. You flee, you collect money, you come back and you fight against this. Right. Well, to some extent, Carlos, I mean, your own experience, I mean, Pedro Pan experience, um, your parents probably didn't think that they would never, or that you would be going away forever. I mean, the Pedro Pan, as I understand, the Pedro Pan experience was we're going to send them to the United States for a while and then we'll get we'll bring them back after, you know, after he leaves. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's true, isn't it, of, of the Pedro Pan yeah. the mentality, mean, right? There was always this dark thought on the horizon. Right. This might be permanent. Yeah. Always that. But it was it was just way, way far, far, far in a distant mm -hmm. possibility. No, of course, we were only going to be here for a few months. Right, right. And and uh, everything would be restored back to normal back on the island. And of course, you know, we, we'd be going back. Right. And there was a history in the island, Carlos, of a lot of political upheaval in the sense that there had been, there's that famous song that uh, I forgot the, the young woman's name, but she talks about the Kitaipon uh, of 
governments, you know, Kitaipong governments. I forgot the young woman's name who sang that song. Uh, yeah, yeah. But yeah. but that's the way it was. I mean, we had had that kind of a history. But you know, talking to my father, uh, re, you know, before he died in '15, but uh, talked to him several times. One of the things that he said was that it would have been different if we had yeah. stayed in Cuba. Uh, and, and that's kind of an interesting theory. I mean, I'm glad that I came here. But had we stayed in Cuba, oh. had we stayed, could he have been able to put down the the number of people that oh. he did? I, I mean, that's a theory. I mean, I don't, I cannot prove it. But what do you think? It's a theory, but I only have to look at Venezuela to see to see how that might not have actually been enough. And actually, Venezuela was operating without the Soviet Union uh, giving its backing. What happened to Cuba was that, you know, Cuba became a satellite colony of the Soviet Union. And this was the, 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 the thickest, uh, uh, most awful, darkest uh, chapter in the so-called Cold, Cold War. I mean, we, we actually have a course here at Yale. It's one of our most popular courses with hundreds of students. Cold War. <laughs> it's, you know, it's ancient history for, for today's students. But the one episode in all of Cold War history that always rises to the surface is number one is the Cuban Missile Crisis. That's right. That's right. Cuba became uh, untouchable, and unfortunately, U.S. Uh, policy uh, also contributed mm -hmm. to Cuba's enslavement because of the failure of the Bay of Pigs invasion mm -hmm. and the decisions that were made uh, as a result of that. And I would add, Carlos, uh, that I think during the missile crisis, uh, decisions were made, I think, or let me put it this way, had President Kennedy said to to Premier Khrushchev, the missiles go, and so does Castro. I think they would have been, they would have made that deal because they were not that happy with Castro. I'm not saying they would have given up their place in Cuba. They could have replaced them with somebody, but they were not that crazy about Castro either. Castro nearly got the two started in a nuclear war when he right. pushed that button. Right, yeah. Um, uh, the story the story is often told. I don't know what the source of the story is, but that you know, in, in the staring contest between Kennedy and Khrushchev, the turning point when Khrushchev blinked was that Fidel told him, "I don't care if the U.S. blows us up. I'm going to blow them up first, or something of that sort. Right? I don't care." I'm going to launch those missiles that Khrushchev said, uh oh, we're not dealing with a stable individual here. No, <laughs> no that's right. And I don't think Nikita wanted to get blown up. No. No, I, I think that, that that's something that he was more rational than Fidel. Well, that was 65 years ago. Now we come to the present and we keep hearing about an economy that is just a total mess. Yeah. Uh, the shortages. I guess they've always existed, but they're pretty bad right now. Uh, there are Cubans leaving the island. Uh, 
10,000, you wrote about this today in Babalu, 10,000 of them are actually living in Houston, Texas. I didn't know that. I don't live in Houston. I live in the Dallas area, but I didn't know there were that many in Houston. And you just have to wonder uh, how many more people can leave the place. Oh, they, they, um, I think, uh, you know, John Suarez, uh, the director of the Center for Free Cuba, is, is the one I get this phrasing from. But he, he started talking a few months ago about the weaponization of migration on the part of the Cuban dictatorship. And uh, this is a deliberate strategy on, on their part. They, they, they want to send more and more Cubans into, it's no longer called exile too. I noticed the change in, in, in nomenclature. Now it's diaspora. <laughs> well, they have to get fancy. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we're like, we're like the, uh, you know, the Jewish diaspora. Right, right. Now, now we talk about the Cuban diaspora. <laughs> right. No, um, I, it's interesting because there was an article that appeared in The Economist, and I, I wish I could find the link because I like to write a, a post about it. I cannot find the link. But it was something along the lines that more and more governments in Latin America, Mexico, top of the list, are getting used to the idea of what they call remesas, which is money that goes I, back. Yes. Mexico is getting between 50 and $60 billion a oh, year. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that is for an economy of about a trillion dollar GDP. You're talking like three percent of their economy. Yeah, and in Cuba it's even larger because right. the last time I checked was like two, maybe three years ago, and the figure was three billion dollars. Oh my in, gosh! In, in remittances from the Cuban diaspora, <laughs> and now. Today, this is my post on Babalu for today, is I keep seeing these uh, Cuban online stores keep popping up. Right. And they're advertising, this is what just blows my mind, is they're advertising on Cuban diaspora websites, right? That are the only sites where you can get the real news about Cuba. Mm. And they're always like print, you know, of course, their main focus is criticizing the dictatorship. But these online stores where you can only buy stuff in dollars or euros with a credit card and they guarantee that they will deliver this stuff to your family in Cuba. Right. And these are all like connected to the military junta that runs the place. I just it just blows my mind that right. And 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 Carlos, these are the same people who used to say that the, Cuba was an American colony. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, yeah. Cuba is, is there's more, I mean, look at the apartheid and tourism and, and look at, the, you know, the something else too. I wanted to make a note of this when you're talking about remesas. Senator Rubio the other day was on TV or on uh, one of the presentations talking about the number of Cubans who come here and then they go back to Cuba on vacation. Oh, yeah. And they actually go back to Cuba and they yeah. spend the money back in Cuba. So this is like, this is wonderful for the Cuban regime. We get rid of these people and then they come back and they spend money here. They support, it's a parasitic relationship. Completely parasitic relationship that they want to cultivate and to uh, enhance. That's why 
a quarter million Cubans fled last year because they were allowed to flee. I mean, right. they had flights to Nicaragua, right? Right. And to Mexico. And they say, okay, fine, you're here now. Go march up across the, the river and, you know. Right. Uh, 250,000 or so. Okay, but to put that in some perspective, I mean, how many Cubans left? I'm going to guess. I don't know this number, but I'm going to guess. Between the time that we left, which was 64, and let's say the end of the 70s, maybe, what, a million Cubans left? Maybe. I think, I think fewer than that. Okay. Yeah. So you've got a quarter of a million last year? Right. Compared to my gen or how I came here as part of that one million? I mean, that's right. pretty incredible. It is. It is all, all in one year. And all of them are potential remittance senders <laughs> or the ones that go visit twice a year. With, uh, I call them yo-yos for obvious reasons, uh, both in English and Spanish. You know, like a yo-yo goes back and forth. Right, right, right. But also in Spanish, yo means I or me. Right. And there's a lot of selfishness involved in this. I don't care if I'm helping the regime by visiting and bringing all these gifts and sending all this money. I don't care. I just need to, you know, have my needs met. Right. And they're going back and, and they're, I mean, I, I was speaking with some Cubans, Cubans the other day who went back on a vacation. Oh, yeah. To Cuba. And I'm sitting there saying, wait a minute. You left a repressive government. Right. And now you're going back on vacation. Explain yeah. that to me because I'm lost. Yeah. And, and um, they go to these apartheid tourist facilities. And, and um, well, what else can be said? That the, these people have a very different mentality, principally because they didn't know the former Cuba. Right. All they have ever known is this monstrous parasitic Cuba. It's right. normal. It's you're normal. Right. That's right. And and most of them were born, like you say, not just after Castro. They were born after the collapse of the Soviet, Soviet Union, Union yeah. which would have been in the early 90s, which is another anniversary that blows my mind. Right. You know, the Soviet Union has been gone for 31 years. And if anybody had said to me, in fact, Carlos, I remember being at a party, uh, a New Year's party, 1989, with a bunch of other Cubans. And we were sitting there talking, and I said to them, you know, next year we're going to do this in Havana. Because we were all, we, we all knew that the collapse of the Soviet bloc only meant that Cuba couldn't survive, that it was just the next, the next domino. Right. And my goodness, 32 years later, it's still, the domino's still standing. It's incredible, really. It, it is. But um, as one of my colleagues here, who's a historian of, of early modern Russia, but also knows a lot about the Soviet Union, uh, said to me, Years ago, uh, he said, well, you know, Cuba might have been a satellite of the Soviet Union, but it was unlike any other satellite. It had its own thing, and it was more like China than, than the Eastern European uh, satellites of the Soviet Union. And right. I think that's true. That is true, because, uh, I mean, I met the other day some people from Romania who were there during the the Kashesko regime and most they didn't leave 
I mean, you didn't see mass migration no. of people from Czechoslovakia or Romania or Poland to the United States. Some did get out, especially after the Hungary invasion in 56. Yes, yeah, some did get out because yeah. of that. And I know my father used to have a friend at the bank uh, who got out during the Czechoslovakia invasion in 68. But for the most part, they stayed behind. Yes. They didn't. And, and again, I'm not I'm not saying that's the only reason, but that is a, a big difference. Well, Carlos, we're just about out of time, so I want you to make a wish for 2024. Tell me what. Uh, oh my God! Make a I don't know. Make one, whatever. Uh, well, yeah. I was gonna, I was going to make a baseball wish, but you probably expected that, so I'm gonna. You make a, a wish for 2024. Peace. All right. Peace. I'm with you there. We are uh, our world is looking very dangerous right now. Yes, you know, I'm going to share that that wish too. I, I really, I really wish for some peace and stability in 2024 because I'm very concerned. There's just too many crazy people on the loose. Oh yeah. And uh, you know why? I guess we can argue about that in another show. But there's just too many, uh, too many Putins in Ukraine, too many Chinese threats to Taiwan. Yes. Uh, too many oh, wow. I- Iranian uh, threats to Israel. Yeah. I mean, it just seems like there's a lot of things, and all it takes is one little trigger, and, and uh, there could be a, a major war well, that would be very deadly. Uh, and so Cuba well. itself could provoke something, too, because Cuba is inviting. I mean, they want the Chinese and the Russians to bail them out again, in a sense. Oh, yeah. And not only that, if Cuba, if Venezuela invades Guyana Ooh. and Cuba is behind it, as they obviously are, because they have like, I don't know how many hundreds or thousands of military advisors in Venezuela. Um, God knows what that would do. The British are ready to, they already sent a warship uh, for the Caribbean. No, God, I, peace, peace on earth. Yes, I would agree with you. Peace on earth and lots of babalu. In 2024, yes. how is that? Lots of babaloo for you and me. Yes, Baba I always Lou. always enjoy reading your your postings at, at babaloo, wow. and uh, I just want to wish you the very best. and And I hope I see you, uh, you know, back at babaloo tomorrow. Same, same goes both ways. Uh, right. And I don't know about you, but um, babaloo keeps me sane. Helps and <laughs> helps to keep me sane. Well, I, I, that's one of the reasons I got involved in it, because it is my connection to Cuba. I'll right. put it that way. Yeah. It is my connection to Cuba. I, If there wasn't a Babalu, well, first of all, you and I would have never met. And I wouldn't have met a lot of other people who right. I've met because of Babalu. But I yep. just think of all the information that I have. I remember when, when I first got connected to Babalu over 10 years ago, one of the first things I did was connect my father to it. And my father used to check it every day because yeah. of the information about Cuba. My father loved it. I mean, he checked it uh, every every single day. Well, Carlos, I want to thank you so much for joining oh, us you. and being a part of this. And we'll do it again, uh, hopefully not the next anniversary of the Castro regime, but maybe yeah. uh, some other time in 2024. Yes. But I want to thank you very much for your friendship and have a wonderful have a wonderful, well, not Noche Buena, that, that passed, Let's go. but <laughs> Año Nuevo. Año Nuevo. Año Nuevo. Eat the and 12 grapes. That, that's, <laughs> las 12 uvas, that's right. I don't know if your parents did this, but oh, yeah. 
one year, my mother, I caught my mother one year throwing water yes. out of the house. Yes, yeah. And, uh, water. and I asked my, my mother, what, what, ¿Qué pasó, mami? Me dice, no, no, los espíritus. Oh. So, <laughs> so I don't know. Uh, I didn't see her do that a lot, but one year she did it. Um, now, we just ate the 12 grapes. And um, I remember my Spanish grandfather sitting on the porch. Gosh, I'm going to start to cry. All right. Eating his 12 grapes. Yes. Yeah. With well, a, I, a nice bottle of wine next. Yes, I know. I know. Next to the chair. Well, Carlos, have a great day and thank you for your time. Thank you for inviting me. All right. My pleasure. Our good friend, Carlos Ada, professor and uh, contributor to Babalu, as many of you know, author of the book, uh, It Snows in Waiting for Snow in Havana, and as well as other books as well. Thank you for listening. I hope you have a wonderful, happy New Year's, and we'll talk to you later. This is uh, Silvio Canto in Dallas.